0: Good morning. It's good to be home. Uh, the other side of the world greets you today, and because we're being recorded, I will be vague, but you guys who've been here long enough know where I'm talking about and, and the people that I'm referring to. Our team greets you, and uh, and they say to you, thank you for your continued partnership and uh, and, uh, and are grateful for you. Uh, I'm also grateful for you and thank you for uh, praying for myself and Rob as we had a a nice case of uh, a certain city's revenge on our being there on the back end of our trip and no doubt uh, the prayers of God's people sustained us so that we wouldn't have to ride on a plane back like that and I'm exceptionally grateful for your, your prayers to the Father on our behalf and he answered those prayers and so that's awesome. Uh, If you ever wonder whether or not uh, prayer is a tangible ministry, put yourself in the line of fire of God's work and require people and uh, folks to sustain you in prayer and you will see that God answers prayer and that's pretty cool. And so thank you for your prayers. Uh, Our team says thank you for your prayers and to continue them and so um, it's cool. I'm looking forward to a few weeks because we're entering a season of, believe it or not, Christmas, right? It's coming up and so we'll be starting in the not too distant future Advent and uh, our other pastors are going to be teaching us through that time and uh, and I'm excited about that. Uh, and so hopefully December 29th-ish I'm going to give you guys a full report on what's happening on that side of the world and just want you to know you need to go ahead and get your passports updated if they're not because we're going to have opportunities for you to get your skin in the game like we haven't had in a very long time. And so... Uh, Seriously, go get your passports ready, okay? Uh, No, really, go get your passports ready. And so it's exciting, it's a good day. Just want you to know that uh, people groups are being reached with the gospel. Our people group is being reached with the gospel. Had the opportunity to put hands in that work and watch lights turn on in souls because of the gospel. And uh, that's awesome. So Jesus is being worshipped today on that side of the world because of you. That's awesome. So uh, I'm excited about that. Uh, super fired up about today because as an educator, uh, I like education. And as an educator, I like history. And I think one of the problems we have, and by the way, we do All Saints Day. If you're new here, uh, All Saints Day is a day on your calendar. Take a look at it. Um, and, and it's there on purpose on the Christian calendar to, uh, to remember saints of the past, Um, It's there for us to take a look at people who followed Jesus and died leaving a legacy. I read a book several, several, several years ago uh, called Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. And in that book, uh, this pastor encouraged other pastors to read Christian biographies. And so I started that discipline of reading the biographies of saints and uh and we started a tradition of all on All Saints Day telling you about the life of someone who's left a legacy in the gospel. And we've done lots and I like to focus on people that folks sort of generally don't know that much about. You remember Anatolist Gambold, right? First successful mission among the Cherokee. Really cool story. I'll tell you on the 29th about running into some Moravians over there on that other side of the world. Yeah, seriously still still The legacy continues. If you don't know who the Moravians are, just go Google it. You'll find enough to read. It'll fire you up. And uh, because of that first successful mission among the Cherokee Indians at the hands of the Moravians, uh, people like myself who are descended from some Scott Irish Cherokee heritage inherited the message of the gospel and heard and had a chance to believe because of the Moravians. And so we tell you stories like that because, A, they encourage us that God uses ordinary people. I think there's a tendency for us to look at people and uh, superstar Christian mentality, particularly in the West right now. And in inside the church, there's this sense of they're Christian superstars. And these guys who are Christian rock stars, and they go, we go to the interweb to listen to them, and we download their sermons, and we listen to their music, and we hold them up as though they are something special. They're not. They're really not. Um, they're sinners, just like you. And, uh, and, and the cool thing is, they're ordinary people, just like you. Uh, it just so happens that that's where God and His providence has them right now. And, and one of the reasons I don't choose people like that is because I want you to see that God also uses people that you've never heard of. Because most of us are going to die, and we're not going to leave a rock star legacy. Nobody will ever know my name. Nobody's probably ever going to know your name. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't leave legacies with nameless people. As a matter of fact, one of the things we've discovered in this study is it's been because of nameless people that movements have started. George Mueller's conversion to his view and understanding of the providence of God led to the literal rescue of thousands of orphans in Great Britain because of a nameless man who happened to be journeying through at the same time Mueller was in this one particular place and he was radically rescued from a flawed system of thinking. God uses nameless people. And so the good news is we're all in that category. And so I tell you these stories because I want you to know that God loves to use nameless people. As a matter of fact, the only reason we know about some of the people in Scripture is because they're in Scripture. I love the fact that in Hebrews chapter 11, there are some people mentioned that many people don't even know that much about who lived the life of faithfulness, right? And so the good news is today, as we take a look at the life of Thomas J. Stonewall Jackson, um, as you can be encouraged that God can use you, even in the middle of complex circumstances that he found himself in as well. Let me be super careful here because I don't want this to come off as as an attempt to resurrect the South, all right? That is not the mission, okay? Um, that is not the mission. Um, when we come at this issue of studying the Civil War, you cannot rely upon the textbook that you had in high school, or maybe even college, unless you had a professor who spent a lot of time talking about the complex issues of the North-South time in our history, you probably walked away with a skewed understanding of what faced our nation in the middle 1800s. I would just say to you, if you think that the Civil War was completely and utterly and totally about slavery only, you need to go do some reading, okay? Slavery is an evil, it is a moral evil, it is sin and it is wrong. You hear that? You hear that? And it... We would not do wrong to spill our blood fighting for the abolition of slavery, right? We've studied the life of William Wilberforce, right? Modern day slave trade is alive and well, lest you think it's been conquered. It is alive and well, and it's a trillion dollar industry. And your country participates in it. You just need to know that. Because it doesn't do anything to shut it down. Right? So... Um, I say this to say, lest you think that we walk around with innocent hands, be careful. Okay? You hear that? So this is a much more complicated issue than you can imagine. Does anybody know what the Kansas-Nebraska Act was? Two hands. You need to go read. The Kansas-Nebraska Act was a key piece of legislation in the middle of the 1800s that was contributing this complicated issue. What about the Missouri Compromise? Few more, very good, not enough. You need to know what the Missouri compromise is. What about the oppression of immigrant labor in the north? You know you aware of that? Okay, a few of you, right? What about slave labor in the South? Much more like y'all like does anybody know what happened in the middle eighteen hundreds? You can move, right? Thank you. All right, we know about some of these issues, right? What about the role of tariffs and international trade in affecting the exporting of goods in the southern states? Right? Yeah, that was a key issue, right? Let me ask you this question. Um, What happens in the state of Georgia when the population of Atlanta becomes the majority of the population of the state of Georgia? You even aware of how that might affect you? Politically, Georgia's a what color state? Red, right? Atlanta is a what color city? Blue. What happens when the population of Atlanta reaches 51% of the population of the state of Georgia, which direction will our state go politically? Blue, right? So at that point, if you're a citizen of, say, Paulding County, what do you lose? Representation. Because at that point... One city, in an entire state, one city, in an entire state, then begins to affect the laws of the entire state. One city. Does that sound fair to you? You're like, I'm not sure if I should answer that question, right? I'm not real sure. It's a complicated issue, isn't it? Because all of the sudden, one city determines legislation for every county in the state. That's how it works, right? And so what we found in the Revolutionary War was that there was a king on the other side of the pond who taxed and did not care that the colonies had any representation whatsoever. Did they have a vote? Come on, do you know your history? Did they have a vote? No! No! We got fired up about that, didn't we? We started this little thing called the American Revolution, didn't we? Taxation without representation, right? Thank you. That's right. Thank you. And it's a complicated issue, wasn't it? Because still today, there are folks who debate. Well, gosh, should we submit it to governmental authority? Should we still be under the crown, or should... Was the American Revolution a good idea? I don't know. If you agree that the American Revolution was a good idea, then you're going to have a hard time criticizing the South for its secession from the Union because it was the same philosophy, the same logic. What you had because of the Nebraska-Kansas Act and Missouri Compromise, you had an increasingly lack of representation in Congress for southern states. And ultimately, their votes did not count. And so philosophically, when you read an intelligent account of the southern secession from the northern states, what you'll discover is that philosophically and practically, they almost didn't have an option. I would even go so far as to argue that it's only because of the secession and the reunification of the union that equal representation began to happen on the part of all people as a result Of that bloody and nasty and awful conflict. So I say all that to say this. Don't be too quick to judge. Okay? and I'm going to say something about that in a few minutes as we draw to the end of this. Because it's going to be real easy to to cast a judgmental eye on some of these people. um, When we have perhaps an ignorant understanding of what was going on. It is a false idea to, to think that every southerner was a bigoted slaveholder. That is untrue. It is also false to believe that every northern person was an abolitionist. That also is untrue. As a matter of fact, you'll discover in the history of our country, a minority of opinions residing in larger population centers have always driven the political landscape of our country. I mean, it's that way today, Right? Just watch the election maps. You pay attention. You know why they do county-to-county tracking? It's because large population centers have a tendency to go one direction when rural counties have a tendency to go another. And they know what's going on. And what you discover is that large population centers have a tendency to drive political issues. And so the bottom line is large political centers don't always represent the fabric of belief. And if I'm blowing your mind right now, you need to go read. You need to go study. Okay? I want to say this to you about Thomas Jonathan Stonewall Jackson, that he was a gentle warrior. He was a gentle warrior. I'm going to read you a passage of Scripture that I think epitomizes his life. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, um, verse 13 and 14. And and ladies, let me say this to you. I'm preaching your husbands today, okay? I'm preaching your husbands. Um, And I say this because I think this is super important. Um, I think this is super important. Um, it It is fallen in God's creative genius to the headship of men to lead their families and men to take a leadership role. And what I want to say to you men today is it is incumbent upon you to lead, not to follow. And so I want to set before you a gentle warrior that epitomizes 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13 and 14. And I think you'll see as we unpack his life a little bit that there are some things we can imitate. And ladies, I think there are some things that you'd be willing to follow when men imitate characteristics that we'll find in this man's life. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13 and 14. Paul says to the men at the church at Corinth, he says, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men... Be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Wow, what an awesome statement. Be strong, act like men, but let it be done in love. Let it be done in love. I think this gentle warrior epitomized that. I think he epitomized that. He was born January 21st, 1824 in Clarksburg, Virginia. Just, just by the way, an FYI, when you take a look at one of the reasons that, that some of the loyalty laid the way it did in this conflict is you'll discover that when when guys like Robert E. Lee and, and Stonewall Jackson, heck, for that matter, even Thomas Chamberlain, the, the um, uh, lieutenant colonel of the 20th Maine who was famous at Gettysburg, which, by the way, is one of the few Christian... Officers in the Union Army. Just an FYI. Thomas Chamberlain. He's worth reading about. Okay? Um, You'll find that these men viewed their states as their countries before they viewed the United States of America as their countries. For instance, Robert E. Lee, his family produced four signers of the Declaration of Independence. And Robert E. Lee had 200 years of Virginia heritage 80 years of American heritage. And so he viewed his first loyalty to Virginia before he did the United States of America. They viewed those states as their countries. And so you will read their lives and they will talk about their country and what they mean is their state. And so so born in Virginia, Virginians are particularly, particularly fired up about their country, i.e. Virginia. And so you'll read that a lot out of the Virginians, and, uh, and and they're particularly proud about that. So just that's for you to know as you read about them. Just know that January 21st, 1824, Clarksburg, Virginia. His parents are Jonathan Jackson, who was an attorney. His mother was Julia Beckwith Neal. He was one of four children. He was the third, uh, the third of four children. Some extended relatives, right? Uh, he was a grandson of Colonel George Jackson, a member of Congress. And he was extended relative of Andrew Jackson of Tennessee and would later be President of the United States. Okay? Early life for, for Thomas J., Thomas Jonathan Jackson, better known as Stonewall Jackson, when he was only two years old, uh, his father and older sister Elizabeth died of typhoid fever. He was two. All right? His father and older sister Elizabeth died of typhoid fever when he was only six years old in 1830. Uh, He was six. His mother was having trouble making ends meet, and she married a gentleman by the name of Blake Woodson. That marriage proved to be a bad experience for the children. He didn't like them. They didn't like him. And so the children were sent to live away with extended family. One year later, so he's seven years old, okay? One year later, um, Thomas' mother died due to complications in childbirth. His half-brother, who survived the birth, um, would die in 1841 of tuberculosis. So at that moment, Thomas, his older brother Warren, and his sister were parentless. They were orphans. And so they would go to live with his father's relatives. In particular, uh, they floated back and forth between two, Mrs. White and Mrs. Brake. For all intents and purposes, the children were orphans and they would have zero advantage. Anything that was to their father's estate went to his relatives, not them. And so they were now orphans. Um, one of the things that his biographer, whose name is um, um, Robert Louis Dabney, uh, he was a Presbyterian pastor, but also chief of his staff in the Confederate Army, uh, which is the earliest biography written. It was written right after the war. It's worth going to get. Tom... Uh, um, Uh, Dabney, uh, it's a great read, but he he spoke about from his wife telling stories about him how he never seemed to possess a levity that a child should probably enjoy growing up. He was very serious. Life had sapped an awful lot of the childhood levity from him, and in many ways it caused him to be more independent than perhaps normal. An example of that is um, Dabney. I'm going to read you a quote. He says, He appeared one day at the house of his father's cousin, judge john g jackson in clarksburg and addressing mrs jackson by the title of aunt uh, which he usually gave her asked her to give him dinner while he was eating it he made the remark and i think this is kind of funny in a very quiet tone uncle Brake and i don't agree i have quit him and i shall not go back anymore and so she would continue to say no you need to go back and live and he says uncle Brake and i do not agree I have quit him, and I shall not go back anymore. So even as a young child, he had a very independent streak, and he didn't agree with Uncle Brake, And he has quit Uncle Brake and he's not going back to Uncle Break anymore. And so that levity of a child escaped him very independent could make decisions. That next morning, Thomas set out on foot, eight years old, set out on foot to travel 18 miles to his uncle, Cummins Jackson, his father's half-brother, who he would live with for the most part until he went to West Point as an appointee to the military college. Thomas and his brother Warren lived with Cummins Jackson. Cummins was a single uh, man of lofty stature, athletic build, but a little bit of a ladies' man. Had valuable farm land and lots of mills for the boys to work in and produce goods. They learned to work. They learned to have a business ethic and a business mind. But Cummins insisted on the boys going to school and Warren wasn't too fired up about going to school even though it was a rural school and a school in which the liberal education wasn't completely available but they learned to read and write and learned to develop some critical thinking skills. Warren did not want to go to school although Thomas did. So Warren decides to leave. He's, he's going to quit Cummins. And, uh, but Thomas wants to stay with Cummins Jackson but because he loves his older brother he decided to follow him and this is a great story. The two of them caught a boat to head down the Ohio River and spend, they spent the next year, fourteen-year-old and a nine-year-old, on an island in the river, chopping and selling wood for steamboats. Thomas was nine; Warren was fourteen. For the next year, they lived alone, chopping and selling firewood to steamboats in this river. Their health started to challenge them. They they decided we might all to go back. Things aren't going so well health-wise, so they caught a ride on a steamboat, and the captain was gracious to let them have a ride for free, and they took them back, and they went back to Cummins, Jackson. Warren went to Mrs. Brake. Thomas stayed with Cummins, and there he would stay until he went to West Point. Can you imagine? Like nine. Nine. Right? That's, that's John Mark. Nine years old. He's Ten. So one year less than John Mark, cutting wood and selling it to steamboat captains for a year with his 14-year-old brother, right? <laughs> Could you do that when you were nine? Interesting, right? Tougher, tougher people, right? A little bit loftier standard. And I would argue, just by the way, as a side note, I don't think it's a lofty standard. I think it probably should be the norm. I think we have a tendency to feminize our boys. I think we have a tendency to expect too little of them. I think they're capable, and I think the myth of adolescence created by Western, godless, psychological culture is a lie. I think we have a tendency to buy into it, and we end up selling our young men short of what they're capable of, but that was free. Um, Thomas didn't get the benefit of liberal education. He got the rural schoolhouse education, uh, but what that came with was the ability to work hard. It came with the ability to learn how to manage land, run how to manage mills and farms. And what he gained was a technical skill and a hard-working mentality, and this would serve him well at West Point and well on into his military career. Well, let's skip forward to his time at West Point. In 1842, he enrolled in West Point. He heard about the opportunity, and he went to seek the appointment. He was admitted only after... His congressional district's first choice withdrew, withdrew his application because he didn't want to do the hard work that West Point required, so he withdrew. Thomas applied, and uh, and he, he won the appointment to West Point. Uh, he was older than most of his classmates, and he struggled terribly with the course load because he didn't have the benefit of a strong liberal arts education. He had much more of a technical education. He could read. He could write. But he struggled with the course load. To make it worse, when he showed up at West Point, he had his homemade clothes on. He was dirty, and uh, and his fellow classmates began to te- classmates began to tease him a little bit about his poor family and his modest education. Uh, but what that did is did two things: it fueled his determination to succeed, but it also caused him to punch some people in the mouth. And uh, and they didn't bother him anymore. And just by the way, another little free piece education for you: don't put words in Jesus' mouth. When it comes to the issue of fighting for your boys, the Bible tells us, and Jesus is clear, that when we're persecuted for the sake of the gospel, we should endure it with patience. It never tells us to let fools take advantage of us for no reason. Hear that? So this whole bully junk that goes around, here's how you fix it. Because there's nobody persecuting your young men for the sake of the gospel, okay? It ain't happening. If they are, they need to take it. Okay? Let's be clear. But if you just got a fool who's trying to beat up on your kid, here's how you fix it. Teach your kid to punch him in the mouth and win. Bullying over. I just solved you years of counseling, so there you go. That's how you fix it, right? And that's what Thomas did. He wasn't putting up with it. So he punched him in the mouth, and you know what? They left him alone. The whole freshman hazing at West Point did not work with Thomas. And so I just say to you, teach him to fight. It's okay. It's alright. Um, uh, but, <laughs> so it taught him to fight. Secondly, it, it taught him how to work hard. And this is going to serve him well also later in his military career, but in his Christianity. And we're going to see that in just a few moments. In 1846, he graduated from West Point, 17th in a class of 59. When he started, he was at the bottom of his class. And by the time he graduated, he was 17 out of 59 had no formal liberal arts education, and he worked his rear end off to graduate 17 out of 59. He had to work extra hard. He stayed up late reading by candlelight so much that he ruined his eyes while he was at West Point. His eyes, he totally jacked his eyes up. Um, They tell us not to do that now, right? Don't read in the dark, things like that, because it will mess your eyes up. He messed his eyes up. He would stay up super late. He had to read extra heavy loads just to catch up. As a matter of fact, he would work so hard that, that he wouldn't even go to the next lesson until he mastered the previous one. So some of his classmates and his professors would be several lessons ahead. The professor may call him. The only time he got demerits was because he would be behind. And so he would be behind. He may be on lesson two. They're on lesson five. But he refused to move until he mastered lesson two. And he did it. And he would catch up. And then he would be behind. So he spent his entire career working hard to stay caught up. Hey, students, there you go. He had to work hard. No excuses. And I say that seriously. No excuses. No excuses. He ruined his eyes doing it. That would serve him well also later in the good providence of God. Thomas would go on after, um, after his conversion, after he became a Christian, to discipline himself so that he could get the Scripture reading in before it got dark. So that by all means he would not miss out on what he called the very bread of life. He had men to lead. He had battle plans to make. He had reports he had to write. But he would discipline himself because of his hard work mentality to make sure that by all means the bread of life was not missing from his diet because he couldn't read at night. So he made sure he got it in. Make sure you get it in. Make sure you get it in. Nothing wrong with good habits, by the way. You break bad habits, right? It's good to have good habits. And scripture reading is a good habit to make sure you fit it in. He did that. Mexican War. Jackson graduated from West Point in the nick of time to fight in the American-Mexican War. In Mexico, he joined the 1st U.S. Artillery as a second lieutenant. He proved his bravery and resilience in the field, serving with distinction under General Winfield Scott. Um, He participated in the Siege of Veracruz, the Battle of Contreras, Chapultepec, and Mexico City. And it was during this time of war that Jackson met Robert E. Lee, with whom he would one day join military forces in the Civil War. Um, By the time the war ended in 1846, Jackson had been promoted to the rank of Brevet Major and was considered a war hero. After the war, he continued to serve in the military in New York and in Florida, which leads us to his time uh, after serving in New York and in Florida. Um, He left the military to serve as a professor at VMI, Virginia Military Institute in Lexington. Uh, Read you a little bit about the unhealthy spiritual climate that sort of surrounded him during the day. And what I found intriguing about this spiritual climate at Lexington is very much the spiritual climate that we find ourselves in today. When I read this statement that he sort of, he was marinating, living in this culture, okay? This was just what he took in. This is the air he breathed every day, all right? Not a Christian, but this is the air he breathed. All right, and this is this is a this is a great statement about the spiritual climate that Thomas lived in. The Christianity of the region was not influential. That's a it's a pretty harsh statement, right? Ministers were few and deficient in intelligence and weight, being chiefly the most uncultivated members of the Baptist communion. God, I hated reading that. We got to do better, man or the itinerant fraternity of the Methodists. Like, he just beating down us Baptists and Methodists. It's terrible. Um, if the citizens saw anything of episcopacy or Presbyterianism, it was only from the transient visits of sermons of ministers from a distance. The state of religious opinion was just what the observing man could expect from such influences. The profession of Christianity was chiefly confined to the more ignorant classes, and among them church discipline and Christian morals were relaxed. Men of the ruling houses like the Jacksons were too often found to be corrupted by power and wealth in which the teeming fertility of their new country was rewarding their talents. Minds such as theirs, self-educated by the activity and competition of their bustling times, were too vigorous to acknowledge the intellectual sway of a class of ministers who dispensed for their sermons their crude notions of experimental piety in barbarous English. There were few cultivated minds to represent the authority of the gospel. Consequently, most of the men of position were openly neglectful of Christianity, and some were infidels. I'm going to say something about that in just a few moments. Um, But there is no room for ignorance when it comes to the faith. There is no room for an ignorant, foolish, lack of effort in communicating the richness of the glory of the gospel. But there was a turning point in this spiritual climate for Thomas. And it came at the hand of Colonel Taylor. Uh, Colonel Frank Taylor was commander of Thomas' artillery regiment in the Mexican War. And this is a great, great story. Colonel Taylor's gospel communication, his prayers for his men, he and his care for them worked, according to Jackson, to awaken an abiding anxiety and spirit of inquiry in my mind. He watched Colonel Taylor's care for him, his constant gospel communication and his prayers for him, and that awakened, according to Jackson, a spirit of inquiry in his mind. What a great story. You know, just, just, just so you know, if you are talking to people about the gospel, you may not see the immediate fruit of it, but your perseverance in praying for them, and by all means, if they hear you pray for them, it's okay. Jackson's men would later talk about him being on his knees in his tent in prayer for them by name because many of them sat around the fire and discussed a very important book that was released in the 1850s. Anybody know what book that might be? Darwin's Theory of Evolution. And many of his soldiers and many of his officers were reading this book and being swayed by this naturalistic view of creation. And Jackson went to prayer for them by name out loud in his tent. And they heard him. They heard him. And many lives were saved because of this man's prayers for them out loud. So you know what? If you're not ashamed of the gospel, it's okay to pull a Colonel Frank Taylor and pray out loud for them. That perhaps your going with the gospel, your prayers for them where they can hear you, may awaken a spirit of inquiry in their minds. And you never ever know what may happen. Because God used you to awaken a spirit of inquiry in their minds. And that's what happened with Jackson. Jackson. So that began his spiritual journey. His spiritual awakening in his Christian life began because of Colonel Frank Taylor. And by the way, it's the last time Taylor's ever mentioned in his life. And I think it would not be false to say that the fruit of salvation as a result of Jackson's effort among slaves and among those who were searching for gospel truth could be tied to Taylor's faithfulness with the gospel. Um, but there was a spiritual awakening. It began there. Because Jackson's youth had been passed in a household where Christianity was unknown. And his progress toward the full embracing of the gospel was gradual, extremely gradual. He was awakened to life in Christ and he believed the gospel. And not a single moment he mentions... An individual event, but a process of awakening and inquiry that led to embracing the gospel. And you know what I think? If we went around the room and we talked about our experience with the gospel, many of us may say the same thing. That there wasn't this exact, necessarily this moment, but there was a process of awakening that took place in me. And that's exactly what happened in him. This process was a two-year journey for him. Of suspense. And you know what the suspense was about? About God's acceptance of him. Like He wrestled with the fact that he could be accepted by God as a son and counted not guilty. It was hard for him. How many of us in this room wrestle with that same thing? that we still want to pay for our sin. We still want to do something to get God to like us more. When we mess up, we seek to flog ourselves verbally and in every other way because we just can't buy that the cross is enough to make me righteous before God. He wrestled with the same thing, which by the way, if he wrestled with it then and we're wrestling with it now, could that be Satan's one of Satan's great tools to keep people from seeing and savoring Jesus? is this need to try to pay for my salvation. He wrestled with the same thing we wrestle with and it was a two-year journey on his part. Um, without any announced event, without any fanfare, he became aware of the full impact of the gospel and confessed the gospel and was baptized and given his first communion by Reverend Parks at Fort Hamilton in Tampa, Florida. And that started the journey for him. Started the journey for him. Um, Thomas's transformation of the gospel was realized in the meticulous nature about which he lived the faith. And here's what I, I this is where we're going to kind of get in the nuts and bolts of how he lived out the faith. Um, how could you tell this man was saved? The meticulous nature at which he sought to live out the gospel. I'm going to give you some examples of this. Okay. Um, and by the way, there's too many to mention. This book's like that thick. I've been plowing through this bad boy for a while. And uh, and and I just encourage you to go get Robert Louis Dabney. Michael Schar has got some great work on, on people from the Civil War. Um, and so go read some of this great stuff. And, uh, and, and there's just way too much for me to put in here. But I'm going to give you what I felt like was most applicable to us today. Here's some of the ways he lived meticulously the faith. Number one, he put... In hard work to excel. He put in hard work to excel. Even General Grant, who got to know Jackson at the military academy at West Point, said this about him. He lived by his maxims. That was Grant's assessment of Thomas, is that he lived by his maxims. In other words, he did what he said. He did what he said. His favorite maxim was, I can accomplish whatever I will to do. His favorite maxim. I could accomplish whatever I will to do. And he lived this out by taking on a 10-year career at VMI after the Mexican War. And he learned to be a professor. He was not a public orator. He was terrible at it. He was horrible at it. And he determined that he would learn to speak in front of people. And he took a class. And he was so bad that people cringed when he got up to talk. But he persevered, he stayed the course, and by the end of his time was a, an accomplished public orator. And so he started a career of being a professor, and he had to learn to be a professor. He taught in artillery, um, applied sciences, what we would probably call physics today. And, uh, and he had to learn to do that, and he learned by putting in the time. He said, I can accomplish whatever I will to do. He learned to be a speaker. As he grew in his discipleship, he learned to lead prayer meetings at his church. He was bothered by the fact that other men in his congregation did not step to the plate and begin to lead in public prayer. And it terrified him to pray in front of people. So you know what he did? He volunteered to do it. He learned to do it. He learned to lead Prayer meetings at his church. What we would probably call connect group or small group meetings. Sunday school and Baptist life. He learned to lead those. Because I can accomplish whatever I will to do. He learned to be a deacon in his church. He was a deacon. A servant of the people. and He learned to serve other people. This is the gentle part of the warrior. He had a great desire that everyone feel as though they were important i will say more about that in just a few moments. He learned to be a deacon. He learned to break the law and to run a school for slaves. I know it's a complicated issue because last year, you remember, we talked about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right? We talked about that role, that difficult place for Christians where we have to get where the law of man begins to... Trump the law of God and the role of the Christian then to begin to obey God rather than man. That difficult place in the middle there somewhere where we have to obey God before we obey men. He learned to find that place and break laws that broke God's laws so that he could do what was right. Let me ask you this question. Do you have an eye on your culture to know where God's laws are broken because of man's laws? And are you learning how to subvert man's laws in favor of God's laws? That's kind of treasonous, isn't it? The Bible calls us to do it. Read Acts. You judge for yourselves whether we should obey men or God. And what did they do? They obeyed God and took the lashes. He learned to break the law so he could run a school for slaves. If it needed to be done, Thomas Jonathan Jackson did it, and he learned to excel at it. He was not lazy. He was not lazy. You could take this first point of the meticulous living out of the faith and you could say he simply was not lazy. If it needed to be done, Thomas, Jonathan, Jackson put his hands to it and he learned how to do it. Men, there's work that needs to be done in this fellowship. And I praise God for these men who stepped up and said, 1 Timothy 3, 1 applies to me. I will learn how to shepherd God's people. I will learn how to shepherd God's people. There's work that needs to be done. And there are men that need to do it and lead the way. If it needed to be done, he learned. I love to watch Josh Hines back there making coffee. High school student, 17 years old. You look at him, you think, God, he's got to be in his early 20s. He's mature beyond his years. If it needs to be done, Josh going to do it. That's awesome. I can accomplish whatever I will to do. Number two, another way that he meticulously lived out the faith. This is a longer statement, so just bear with it here so I can think of another way to say it. The exercise of temperance. That's an old word, right? Temperance. What does that mean? Like applying temper to our daily life. Self-discipline. The exercise of temperance regarding his weaknesses and adherence to his conscience with grace and gentility never projecting those on his friends and colleagues. He was an exceptionally temperate man and he had strong convictions, but he never projected them on his friends and colleagues as though they should do what he should do. As a matter of fact, he with he withheld himself often from projecting his conscience on other people because he didn't want them to feel as though they should obey God the way he was supposed to obey God. Now, that doesn't mean he wasn't passionate about the things that are true for all of us, right? There are certain things, Jesus is God, it's not negotiable. You disagree with that, we're going to have to kick you out. You can't be a Christian if you don't believe those things, right? Those are basic to the faith. But there are some issues that we apply to ourselves because of our conscience that others don't apply to themselves. And what do we have a tendency to do is read those on other people, right? I don't, somebody may say, I don't consume alcohol. Well, others say, I do consume alcohol. And then others are like, well, you're a sinner. Well, no, you're a sinner. And "Ah," and they go at each other. He never did that. He never said that I have this conscience issue and I'm not, I'm going to project it on you and you should do what I do. He held them. He lived them. But he never went out of his way to make sure somebody felt guilty because he lived out the faith that way. Gentility. But man, he exercised temperance about his weaknesses and adherence to his conscience. Example, alcohol. Uh, Thomas Jonathan Jackson mentioned that he avoided alcohol because he tasted it once as a youth and he liked it very much. When asked to join friends in a glass of brandy, Stonewall quipped, And you can almost hear this in that fake southern sort of thing, which some of us don't have to make up because it just comes out that way. Um, He says, I am much obliged, but I never use it. I am more afraid of it than of federal bullets. But he didn't turn around to them and say, you shouldn't drink it either. No, thank you, I'm obliged, but I'm more afraid of it than federal bullets. About the Sabbath, this is when he was fired up about the Sabbath, man. He was grieved to the core that his state government and his federal government allowed mail to be processed on the Sabbath. Like it bothered him to death. Like he believed that the Sabbath was holy practically... Not just from the Gospel perspective of, of the Sabbath, but on the Sabbath, there needed to be a physical rest that displayed the spiritual rest we've entered in Jesus. And it bothered him that male was allowed to run on the Sabbath. Tore him up. He was so grieved that he would not even send key correspondence on the Sabbath. Wouldn't do it. Wouldn't open it. If he got a letter that came to him on the Sabbath, he said, If I violate my conscience, then the very thing I stand for is no good. Therefore, if it is of value, God himself will make time for it tomorrow. And there were times he would get key correspondences from people. And his friends would say, aren't you going to open it? And he goes, I will not open it. God is in charge of the letter, and if the timing needs to take place, He will be in charge of the timing tomorrow. But I will obey today. That's stinking awesome. Whether you agree with Him or don't agree with Him, at least He did what He said. He even got a letter one time from a young lady that had the goods for Him, and He liked her too. And His friends, like, they were going to worship. And his friend said, are you not going to read the letter? And he goes, no, I'm not going to read the letter. And he put it in his pocket. And, and his friend said, well, are, isn't your mind going to be distracted from worshiping the Lord because that's in your pocket? You want to know what he is? And, and he says, I will not allow my mind to be distracted. And he went in and he worshiped. And he commented after that it was one of the most glorious times of worship of his entire life. He opened the letter the next day. And all was well. All was well. well. Um, He wouldn't open it. He was absolutely true to who he was in his convictions, but he never projected those onto other people. And you know, one of the things I think that happens in the life of the body is we have a tendency to hold convictions that aren't biblical necessarily. They're not wrong, but then we project them onto other people, and when other people don't meet our expectations, we shun them. You ever notice that? And there's not a soul in here that's not guilty. Right? Right? It's okay to carry those convictions, but it's also okay to be gentle. He obeyed his convictions, and he wouldn't bend on them for himself, but he never sought to make people feel guilty for his convictions. Third area he meticulously lived out his faith is Bible reading. Due to the strain he put on his eyes, he could not read after sundown, so he had to fit it, his Bible reading and his preparation for teaching during the daylight times. I don't know about you, but oftentimes our preparation takes place at night because your days. I don't know about you, but I don't get to sit in my office and chant psalms all day. Right? I, don't hold my, I don't sit and meditate on scripture all day. There are things to do. right? And sometimes our preparation has to take place when, when things are shut down. And so that's, that, that for him he couldn't do. And so he would sit facing the wall and he would recite it over and over and over again in his mind. He had it down by memory so he could go into the classroom and get it done the next day. Do the same thing with Bible reading. He made sure he fit it in. It fit on his iCal. If he had an iCal, it would be on there. Before sundown, read your Bible. He built his schedule so he could keep all his social duties and his classroom duties. But he would not miss the bread of life, he called it. And I'd say I want to imitate that. Number four. He had a passion for sound doctrine and a commitment to the church. When he began to be awakened by the gospel and embrace the faith, he visited every known denomination, including what he called popery. And I don't think that's a derogatory term. I think that is, for the day, that was language to speak of Catholicism. Uh, He asked many questions but due to his meticulous nature. And this is one of the things I appreciated about what he said. He was bothered by the fact, though, that he was visiting all the various denominations without settling down. And he referred to his continual inquiry as promiscuous worship. He believed that if I'm going to be in covenant with God, God's in covenant with me, I need to be in covenant with people. And it bothered his conscience. And so he settled upon being a Presbyterian. And we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. Good Presbyterians. Love them. God bless Presbyterianism. I'm there almost, right? Um, Not quite, but almost. It bothered him. He took seriously the doctrines of the faith and he sought to solve every theorem of divinity that presented itself. So if there was a question, he would go to the Scriptures until he could get it settled in his mind on what he was to think and believe and how he should act as a result of it. You ever have questions, and you just shove them off to the side, and, eh, I'll just never mind. it's good. And my show's coming on, right? No, this cat wasn't happy until he had worked in his mind the answer to the question with his Bible. He would, on the beginning of um, his growing in the faith, land in the Presbyterian Church, although he counted Calvinism a dreadful thing. And he held to the Armenian way of thinking. <laughs> and I love this next statement. This is awesome. And I'm going to say something smart, Alec. But I can't help it. Uh, he says, It was not very long before his difficulties gave way before his honest and persistent prayerful inquiries. And he became one of the firmest, though least bigoted advocates of the Calvinistic as distinguished from the Arminian scheme. And I would say, and so does everyone who reads their Bibles. Um, so... <laughs> that was the smart aleck thing I was going to say. But you know, uh, so he, became a, he came, became a true, all the way to the bone, Presbyterian. The fifth thing I appreciate about Jackson was his deep reliance on providence. He greatly depended on the providence of the Lord. He believed, Proverbs sixteen thirty three: the lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. He believed that and he lived that. Do you live like that? You believe... And live like Proverbs 16, 33. So I'm wrestling with that right now in the phase of life we're in. You know, I like to believe God causes the dice to land. But sometimes I'm just not really sure. Because it doesn't seem like the, de- the dice seems to land in my favor often. You know what I'm saying? Anybody tracking with me there? It seems like everything just seems to work against you. He believed that in great detail. This led to his famous. And he was famous for his personal bravery in combat. And in seeking to even break the law to educate people that the law said shouldn't be educated. He believed that every single detail of life was orchestrated by God who was working for His good. And he lived it out. This is uh, one of the greatest statements. It's better than the class I teach, systematic theology, better than I think Grudem's statement on Providence. is beautiful. I'm going to read this for you. It's page 156 in Dabney's biography. It says, The doctrine of Providence teaches that the regular natural agency of second causes... Second causes meaning our decision-making, right? Second causes, the ultimate cause is God, right? Now, if you don't believe that, it's going to be hard to be a Christian. Like, God's working, you know, he's, He's God, right? The whole Godness of God thing. Secondary causes would be us, right? The doctrine of providence teaches that the regular natural agency of second causes is sustained, preserved, and regulated by the power and intelligence of God. And that in and through that agency, every event is directed by His most wise and holy will. At once, according to His plans and to the laws of nature which He has ordained. Fatalism tends to apathy, to absolute inaction, a belief in the providence of the Scriptures to intelligent hopeful effort. This faith produces a combination of courageous serenity with cheerful diligence in the use of means. Awesome. In other words, if God truly is ruling history, I can be courageous and peaceful, understanding God is using these means for my good and His glory. Which is why He was often known to ride the front lines in combat with His left hand raised. Now there are two reasons given as to why he did that and I can't settle on which one I believe. There's no clear answer. Some say he was in constant prayer and he lifted his hand to call on the Lord as he led his men. Some say he was wounded in the hand and kept his hand raised to cause himself not to lose more blood than he had already lost. Either way, I'm sold. I like the man. Right? So bullets are whizzing by. I'm wounded. Don't bleed out. But he stays in combat because he trusts That God causes bullets to even fly or to miss. Or, Father, protect my men, protect me as I lead them into combat. Anybody, any man got a man crush right about now? I'm like, yes, want to be like him, right? Awesome. I'm sold on the guy, right? He believed in the providence of God. What a glorious reality. Oh, wow, I'm out of time. (laughs) Uh, He was quick and eager to submit to the truth, quick and eager to submit to the truth. One day he was engaged in a conversation on the Hebrew system of religious giving uh, and was much interested in the assertion that while the tithe was no longer enjoined by express precept on God's people under the new dispensation, the usage of worshiping God with stated offerings of our substance was in degree abrogated or revoked. In other words, we don't have to give a tenth anymore, he would say. But he said the tenth was probably, in most cases, his friend, a suitable proportion to be self-imposed by Christians for this voluntary thank offering. After much inquiry and friendly discussion, Jackson closed the conversation. And the next day on meeting his friend, he said that his friend had convinced him of this duty. And what he began to do from that point on was not only give a tenth, but he grew that ratio every year of his giving. So when he was presented with the truth and convinced of the truth of Scripture, you know what he did? He bent his life around it. So when his friend convinced him that, you know, a tenth isn't the standard anymore, which I would agree with that, it's you you owe God everything. The tenth is kind of like a good starting point, right? All things belong to the Lord. He said, okay, I'm convinced. And he started to do it, and he grew that percentage every year of his life. He gave because he was convinced of the truth. Number seven, a desire to consider others better. I've said some about that already. Number eight, trying to, make difference, trying to make a difference in difficult circumstances. Trying to make a difference in difficult circumstances. He had a desire that all people hear the gospel and grow in the truth at all costs. Um, he started a Sabbath school for two groups of people. One group of people that he viewed as having infidel beliefs. People who were doubting Scripture, doubting the truth of who Jesus said he was. And secondly, the slaves who had zero education. And so, what did he do? He found out a way to start a school that he himself ran, funded, and taught. For those who wanted further inquiry into Jesus, we would call that apologetics. He started a school of apologetics to defend the gospel for those who were seeking to learn. And he started a school for slaves who needed to be educated. This is kind of where we get into to, to some stuff that I think is important for you to hear. Jackson, along with others, believed in abolition. It is a lie that all northerners were abolitionists and all southerners were slaveholders. It is untrue. He believed in abolition. But he thought that abolition, apart from education, was inhumane. He believed that in order for abolition to be rightly done, that the slave population needed to be educated, given a trade, and given free land so they could have a means of producing income before being freed. And he sought to practice that in breaking the law. Did he fight to free slaves? No. Did he believe slaves should be free? Yes. Did he try to help? Yes, he did. And let me issue this word of warning for you, okay? Lest we treat Stonewall Jackson and others like him too harshly on this side of history, we have the privilege of looking back at the 1860s and going, gosh, you should have done more. Or gosh, why didn't you do that? Right? Lest we judge too harshly, let me ask you this question. What will history say of us? 150 years from now regarding the slavery of government-funded abortions and the genocide of abortion due to evangelical inaction? I that to sit on you for a minute. It's easy to look back and say, God, oh, man, why didn't you do more? Why didn't you do more? Why didn't you do more? Well, let me look at us and say, why don't we do more? I've said this before from right here. I'm going to say it again. In order for us to have any integrity at stopping the genocide, and it is genocide, of abortion, government-funded abortion, by the way, your tax dollars, just so, just so I hopefully can inject a little anger into you, because it's okay, by the way, it's okay to be angry at the things God's angry at. Read your Bible carefully. There should be anger at that. That's your tax dollars and mine. Funding genocide. Just an FYI. We have to become the premier adoption agency on the planet in order to have any integrity at walking in the door and saying, this will stop today. The church must do its job in taking the babies. I sit as a member representing you on our county department of family and children's services and the least active institution in that world is the church. Which is why I'm there. We have to become the premier adoption agency on the face of the planet so that there is no excuse for who's going to take them. We don't have any more government money. We need to say, we'll take them. We'll take them. We'll take them. Bring them to us. Bring them to us. We may have to get arrested at some point. We may have to resist at some point. But lest we judge Stonewall Jackson and others like him too harshly, let us take a look at ourselves and ask those same questions of ourselves. He did what he knew as best as he could at his own cost and his own peril. And I hope that we can say the same thing of ourselves when all is said and done. Finally, Um, In his death, May 2nd, 1863, um, Jackson was accidentally shot in an early morning scouting of the front line by friendly fire from the 18th North Carolina Infantry Regiment. He was wounded in the right hand, the left shoulder, and left forearm. As a matter of fact, they think that probably getting him to a hospital is probably what killed him more than the wounds themselves. It took nearly a day to get him back to the back lines. He was dropped several times because they were being shelled while they were trying to carry him on a litter, fired at. He was dropped multiple times. He lost a lot of blood. Uh, but at a nearby field hospital, his left arm was amputated, shoulder down. On May 4th, he was transported to a second field hospital in New Guinea, in Guinea Station, Virginia, um, and this is what this is where you see his belief in the doctrine of God's providence come full circle. Dabney writes on page 707. You see me severely wounded. This is Jackson speaking, Dabney recording his words. You see me severely wounded, but not depressed. I'm sure that my heavenly Father designs this affliction for my good. Wow. I'm perfectly satisfied that either in this life. Or in that which is to come, I shall discover that what is now regarded as a calamity is a blessing. If it were in my power to replace my arm, I would not dare do it unless I could know it is the will of my Heavenly Father. He died of complications on May tenth, 1863 at the age of 39, leaving his wife and baby daughter. His last words were, let us cross over the river and rest under the shade of the trees. Who knew what he was seeing? If you've ever had the privilege of of, uh, being with someone as they pass to the eternal kingdom, it's a pretty cool experience. And uh, who knows? Let us cross over the river and rest under the shade of the trees. What the Lord was letting him see. Lee would comment later, he lost his left arm, but in losing him, I have lost my right arm. That's how valuable he was viewed to be. I'm going to throw a few conclusions on you and then we're done. It's okay to take a little extra time today. Nobody's going to fall asleep out of the third story window and fall and die. You may fall out of your chair, but it's so big, that's your fault, not mine. Um, number one, I want to say this to you, circumstances do not dictate the man. Father can use any man who will submit to father. He was an orphan. He had no advantage to himself. God doesn't need the upper class. Father uses any man who will submit to him, including orphan boys who cut wood on islands just to make money. So don't let your circumstances tell you that God cannot or will not use you. Hear that, men? circumstances do not dictate the man. Don't let your past rule your future. In Christ, and in Christ alone, there is hope that He can take the least and do great things with the least. A little passage in 1 Corinthians 1 ought to encourage you about that. God takes the weak things to despise the strong. You're a candidate for great work if you're the least. Number two, we can work hard with the mentality that if one wants to excel at something, they can. Men, we cannot use the excuse that I can't do it. If you're willing to work hard at it, it can be done. Number three, we should examine spiritual issues thoroughly with a refusal to accept anything less than what is right. Wow. Wow. You know one of the things I find that bothers me today, men? Is that usually the spiritual climate of the home and even the school is set by women. The least I find willing to read and study most are men. This is unacceptable. Unacceptable. We should examine spiritual issues thoroughly with refusal to accept anything less than what is right, men. So I want to challenge you, men. If you're not the spiritual climate of your home, Start being such. It is your job. It is effeminate to be anything less. Don't say Trinity's too hard for me. Don't say those are complicated issues. Work them out. You have Holy Spirit dwelling in you. How can you not? Right. Before. Ignorance of issues is not optional. We must embrace the need to be men of intellect who will deal well with the issues of our day. He did his best to deal with the issues of secession and the Confederacy. We have similar issues facing us today that affect moral issues swirling around your home and mine. Men, we must not be outthought. Ignorance is not an option. What are you going to believe about stem cell research? What are you going to believe about abortion? What are you going to believe about euthanasia? What are you going to believe about taxation? What are you going to believe about race relations? Do you know your Bible well enough to address them from Scripture? We cannot allow ourselves to be ignorant, men. Five, and finally, applying the whole of Scripture to the whole of life. One of the last things this man did before he died was bring in some of his officers and talk about how Joshua, the book of Joshua, taught him how to write after-action reports. Some of the last things he did was talk about how Scripture taught him how to write after-action reports for General Lee. And we look at something like that and go, that's kind of cheesy, you know, not Not really. The man sought to take every page of Scripture and use it in his living. Did he make mistakes? Sure. Are there convictions he had I don't have? Yeah. But I sure hope that when I pass, somebody says of me, he sought to take every page of Scripture and bend his life around it. That's a pretty decent legacy to leave. So I'd say to you men, if we lead our homes the way he led his life, who knows, maybe spiritual renewal would come to the south once again. Where the church lies dormant but issues abound. Who's going to lead the charge? It will be us, if we will. If we will. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for nobody falling out of windows and passing today because I talked too long. Father, thank you for the life of of saints who've gone before us and who've set standards for us to look at and go, wow, I can be like that. Father, thank you for... um, Father, thank You for complicated issues to exercise our mind on, to bring the gospel to bear in. Lord Jesus, I recognize that there is no perfect solution until You return and set up the kingdom with You as King. So until then, we've got a broken system. We've got broken things. And we have your word and we have your spirit and we have the gospel and we have each other. And we pray that you would teach us how to put all those things together in community, life together under the word, to be salt and light. Pray that you'd use Thomas Jonathan Jackson as an example for us to draw upon as someone in history who sought to do just that. Even in their failure, but even in their successes, help us to imitate some of that. Father, I pray today that you would draw us into worship, that we would come near to you to make much of you. Don't let our minds be taken captive by lesser things, but cause us to think on you, think on you well, and to make much of you in this song. Hey, I'm just asking you to stay where you are for just a second. I want to say this: we're long, okay? We're long. But don't think that there's anything more important than you right now making much of Jesus. There's nothing more vital than that right now. Okay? Get that? Don't be worried about opening the letter to read it. God and His providence is in control of your day, your hours and your moments, your children, radical kids, everything. Take this opportunity to make much of Jesus. And just maybe that would be one of the sweeter moments you have in your history. So Lord Jesus, we pray that as we come to make much of you, we pray that you would be glorified and we would find great joy in you today. In your name we pray.